Hi, and welcome to the ninth episode of the History Machine podcast. This episode is called Sulla, and it's after the famous Roman commander. So if you're not familiar with the podcast, please feel free to go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes, although it isn't necessary listening. So if you just want to enjoy this one, feel free to do so. So Cahill, could you just explain quickly to our listeners what exactly is the AI that we use called the History Machine? So the History Machine is a neural network-based artificial intelligence trained on a database of historical battles to determine what should have happened, uh, what casualties should they have dealt out and suffered, how likely was each commander to die or get captured. It then compares this to what actually happened to see how well each general did. And uh, if you want to actually learn a little bit more about the History Machine, we do have a History Machine starter episode that will go a little bit more into depth on how the AI works and what exactly it does. But effectively, it lets us talk about these commanders with a bit of confidence about their tactical ability and what they can do, what we expect them to do, and how well they under or overperform. So to start, we're looking at Sulla. So we're going to go a little bit back in time and talk about Rome a little bit before Sulla comes to the stage. So this is going to be a little bit after the Punic Wars, which ended with the destruction of Carthage and the supposed salting of the earth so nothing could ever grow again. And Rome finds itself in this wonderful position where they're the only superpower in the Mediterranean and they are just expanding like wildfire. They're encompassing parts of North Africa, parts of modern France, Greece, Spain. And uh, at this point, the landed aristocracy are becoming fabulously wealthy. The reason being because there's so many wars, they're bringing back a lot of slaves. They're buying these slaves and then they're going to use them for cheap labor to farm land. And uh, they're going to have an economy based very heavily on slavery. The standard working class of Rome can't really compete with it. The average Roman soldier who's serving at this time might spend decades overseas fighting and conquering territories and capturing slaves only to return to find their own homes have been bought out by these rich <laughs> who kind of own so much, uh, so much land and property. The rich are getting incredibly rich and don't really give a care about anybody else in the world. The business class are making a fortune in slave trade and the working class are finding themselves possibly homeless, unemployed and layabouts. And a lot of them are just flocking to Rome in the hopes of finding work. So in this employment and economic crisis, the plebeians, who are the working class, are falling into debt. They've defaulted in their homes. They can't really compete with, the, with, with literal slave labour. One of these big problems with the expanding Rome is that they need the soldier manpower to deal with this colossal empire. Now, the problem is the average Roman soldier literally has to be a citizen soldier. They have to own a plot of land in the state itself to be allowed to serve. So Rome finds itself in this awkward situation where they have a huge amount of homeless vagabonds around the place who are not able to do anything uh, other than possibly just the odd job here or there. Don't meet the basic minimum requirements to be soldiers. And now we have a manpower crisis in a place which, if you've listened to some of our earlier episodes, is renowned for its manpower ability. Two particular fellows try to solve this political crisis. Both of them do not succeed and they're referred to in history as the Gracchi brothers. They're two very interesting characters because they kind of abuse their power, but they run on this political angle of we are for the popular party. We're for the average working man. We're not here to help the, the nobles and the aristocracy. We're here to get the 
the day-to-day people back on their feet. We don't really care about the rich people and effectively they're kind of traitors to their own class. But they find a loophole in the Roman political system and that is the power that we would know today by based on the word a veto. So you can veto a law, veto a proposition, veto an argument, veto whatever. And there is a particular role in the Roman political class, an elected position called the Tribune of the Plebs. It was a position that was effectively there to enable that 10 tribunes would be able to represent the working class, the plebeians of Rome, and they would have particular political powers, but the power of the veto was also granted them, which made them incredibly powerful. So the Gracchi brothers kind of used this to abuse their position to try and get things to happen. It didn't end well for them. And long story short, the two Gracchi brothers will end up being killed. Their reformations will not be put into effect. And Rome will continue down the line with this whole landed aristocracy getting wealthier and wealthier and the working class getting poorer and poorer and then finding themselves with a worse manpower crisis. So into this political world and this turmoil, we're going to look at our first big commander. So this person is Gaius Marius. So for his early life, he, his home is in the Arpitium in the south of Italy. It was absorbed into the Roman Republic. And then later in his life, these people got citizenship and the right to vote. Supposedly, his father was meant to be a labourer. That's really quite unlikely. He's certainly at least of the middle class level. That would be called equestrian by the Romans. But he was possibly higher, maybe a nobleman. But anyway, that's not too important. But what is important to notice is he isn't part of the old Roman elite. He isn't part of the absolutely up there, ridiculously wealthy aristocracy that has dominated Roman politics at this time. So legend says that when Marius was a teen, he found an eagle's nest with seven eggs, and that was later interpreted as an omen for him to be consul seven times. Now, the position of consul is like being, um, we've often compared it to the presidency of the United States. You've got to run for a long time. You've got a lot of political opponents to run against and uh, Rome elects two of them at a time. So the idea of somebody being consul seven times is crazy. It's like having seven terms as a president. It's unheard of. And for that to be a prediction or an omen will tell you just the calibre of this person. So we look at a young Gaius Marius, and he's got a couple of things to him. Firstly, he's meant to be a very imposing physical man. He's meant to be a manly man, the kind of guy that you'd love to go out and have a beer with, that he doesn't like any of your artsy stuff or your fancy footwork. He's all about like just being the real rough and tumble kind of fellow. So naturally, he's very popular among like troops and other people. In the military profession, he is famed for many things and he is taken note by Scipio Aemilianus, that is the Scipio of the Third Punic War where they buried Carthage. So Scipio Aemilianus identifies Gaius Marius as an up-and-coming star. Apparently he killed a barbarian king in single combat, which is pretty ridiculously good considering, you know, like that's something you wouldn't want to risk. And uh, at some point later in Scipio Aemilianus' career, he was asked at a dinner party, who's going to replace you as the commander? Like where will Rome turn to for its wonderful military leaders? And supposedly uh, Scipio turns, taps on Marius's shoulder and says, perhaps it's going to be this guy right here. Now, I'm paraphrasing quite a bit. So, Carl, could you tell me, just as an example, considering Scipio Emilianus is meant to be this uh, peak of commander at the time, what kind of stats would we look at for Scipio Emilianus to be compared to for our Gaius Marius that will come to later? Interestingly, despite him being, you know, peak commander for his time and... With the rich pedigree. History Machine only regards him as kind of average to good. Uh, his window for expectation, it's a bit under... 
point two. You know, so he's he's better than the average general, but not by a huge amount. His casualties dealt over expectation is very high, point four four. So dealing out forty four percent more than would be expected. So a bit of a butcher. You have to remember though. Yeah, this is the Third Punic War. It's not. It's not two superpowers going toe to toe. This is mostly you know wiping out civilians, taking slaves, and the like. And I think it is worth bringing up, again, to give context to uh, where Gaius Marius is coming in. Rome at this stage, they have it pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Scipio Aemilianus, his, uh, you know, Africanus, one of the best generals in the whole database. You know, he was absolutely outstanding. But now, you know, they haven't had the same opposition. They haven't been battle-hardened the same way the previous generations were. And you can just see a bit of weakness begin to slip in uh, mm. into the Roman army and... We will see that kind of comes in later and you see why people like Gaius Marius and Sulla were needed to take on these new threats. Yes, yes. So to continue on a little bit with Gaius Marius, as we said, he seems to be this imposing, manly, charismatic figure. He does decide to kind of move into politics. Now, Rome at the time (laughs) seems to have this idea that uh, politics and military ability are kind of interconnected if you score well in the military side you tend to score well in the political side and vice versa now you do have people that can be phenomenal commanders but can't quite translate that to political achievements but there is a certain amount of just gravitas and charm and charisma that goes with either being a good politician or a good commander and it definitely brings you a certain amount of support so Gaius Marius's political career is going to start off with him becoming elected as a position of military tribune, the starting stone towards consul. So he's aiming to be consul seven times. So after this, he becomes one of the 10 plebeian tribunes. So these are the people who have the power to veto. This was likely done, though, by the consul at the time to limit the number of vetoes that could be used against them. So you're looking at the whole political idea of how many people can actually stop me doing what I want to do. I better put people I like into that area. So his early political life, he doesn't make too many friends because he's a bit of a boorish, strong, headstrong, manly kind of fellow. But his sheer calibre and tour de force of personality keep him afloat. He becomes a praetor. And then he marries Julius Caesar's aunt, Julia. Now, you can judge by the lexicon of uh, the Caesar family and other people that there's a lot of Juliuses and Julias. So it's, it's, it's interesting. We have to denote who is who. So it's Julia, Julius Caesar's aunt. Um, this would actually give him a partitioned family to springboard him higher up the political hierarchy. But he would also at this time bring a lot of money to the table for marriage because he was stationed in Spain before this, where there are a lot of areas to conquer, a lot of areas to take a lot of silver from Spain, effectively. His first really noted military command as a sub-commander is going to be in Africa. And that's when he joins the then consul Quintus Salinius uh, Metellus in his campaign against Jugurtha. Now, I'm going to make a little bit of a side note here and talk about Jugurtha because he is just pretty out there in terms of what he can do. He's an eccentric African king of Numidia. He killed all his half-brothers. He massacred Italian civilians in the civil war against them. He bribed most of his proponents in Rome to support him in the Senate. And every time Rome would send somebody out to deal with Jugurtha, he would either engage in a vicious guerrilla campaign or bribe his way to victory. And... This just kind of kept happening and it was a little bit apparent and very embarrassing for the Romans where, come on, I'll be the guy who'll go out and take care of Jugurtha and coming back and be like, there's nothing I could do with, you know, <laughs> pockets laden with gold. <laughs> so um, so after the start of the hostilities, um, um, a first army was sent to Midia and they were bribed to withdraw. A second army is defeated and they're forced to march under the yoke. 
Now, actually, this, these particular battles didn't have enough data to be included in our database, so it kind of limits what we can do about Jugurtha, but uh, the shenanigans are definitely there just to show the amount of uh, foreign affairs and slip-ups and mess-ups on Rome's side, and it's really making them look particularly bad. So I think this will lead us nicely into our battle in minus 108 BC, the Battle of Muthul, where Roman forces under Metellus and Marius are going to defeat the Jugurthan forces technically a tactical draw but that's enough for a victory for the romans and it's technically a strategic victory for the numidians but they do retreat so both sides in that sense you can claim a draw but it's one of these ones in the database that's down as a draw but possibly you the romans will probably claim a victory for it so it's just on the line but anyway Cahal, let's have a look at those stats take a look at the commanders and let's see what this battle looks like so this one, we have it listed as a draw, and the history machine did have it pretty close to 50-50. It had Jugurtha, very slight advantage, like 51% chance. Okay. Rome had the bigger army, but Numidia had large cavalry contingent, and I mean, that's why Rome wanted them in the empire in the first place, is Numidia always had very, very strong cavalry, you know, going back generations now at this point. As you said, it was a tactical draw, but almost certainly would have been a loss if Marius hadn't intervened. Roman losses for, in this one are pretty huge, 15,000. So that really shows that cavalry had been used by the Numidians basically to carve up the Roman side, scatter them, send them all in different directions. Yes. Um, so they could just be picked off one by one. But Marius managed to kind of get them reorganized, get them defendable position on top of a hill. And from there, they were able to kind of claw the battle back. Jugurtha had, had cut the Romans off and they fought them in the desert where the Numidians had an advantage because they're used to that weather and their light cavalry is also used to that terrain. And it, it was very much a scattering of Romans. And as you mentioned there earlier as well, that Gaius did reorganize them into small groups and managed to salvage it and pull it out of somewhere and end up with a Numidian retreat. So it's definitely, you can see why some people would look at that and go, wow, that is a phenomenal victory on our side. We came out of that with our lives when we probably should have been killed. So the strategic win for the Numidians, but definitely the tactical win. So it, that's why it's down as a draw. Yeah. But I mean, really, a draw is good enough when you're kind of Empire on the Rise versus a small sp splintering faction. You can just wear them down through attrition, really. You can, if you keep having draws, they're going to lose. So Gaius Marius returns to Rome to seek election as a consul. So after he wins the election, Marius returns to Numidia to take control of the war. Before going back, we have a couple of issues. Rome, as we mentioned earlier, has a manpower crisis, so he's kind of really wants to bolster that again. So to do it, he removes the requirement for soldiers to be landowners. Now, just as a very, very quick side note, this particular thing, and he will solidify it later, but the idea that soldiers do not have to be landowners is attributed for why the Roman Republic will fall. Because loyalty will no longer be to the state, the loyalty will be directly to the commander who is paying your wages and promising you you know, the earth, moon and stars when the campaign is over. Gaius Marius would return fighting in Africa. He's going to find it actually to be a lot of pain. So now he's back, he's in charge. It's time for the manly man to do the manly things. We've sent in, you know, the real hard hitter with a sledgehammer. And he's finding it particularly annoying because of the amount of guerrilla tactics. Now he's going to send in his quasar, Sulla. Now it's the first time we've mentioned of him, but uh, Sulla 
Gaius Marius, even from the start, is not fond of him, but Sulla is very liked by the troops. Now, amazingly, Sulla, who we are going to talk about in depth later, was able to beat back harassing African light cavalry during guerrilla engagements, and he was also involved in a sinister plot to capture Jugurtha with a small band of men and bring the war to an end. Now, Jugurtha will be returned to Rome in chains, which was the promise of Marius, but it is noted, and we have to mention it, that it is Sulla who does the capturing. It is Sulla who gets involved in the plot. It is Sulla who takes all the risks that personally he could have been strung up and beheaded. But he is the guy with an elite team of small men, finds this eccentric king who's able to bribe his way left, right and centre and guerrilla tactic his way for years. Capture him, tie him up, bring him back and take him back to Rome. Now, Marius is going to take credit for this capture because he's technically the guy in charge. But that little engagement, that small meeting between Marius and Sulla, where they'd never really got on to begin with, but Sulla will be quite annoyed that Marius is claiming credit for what Sulla does. I'd also like to bring up at this point, we'll get into his full stats later, but Gaius Marius in the whole database has the highest commander kills or captures above expectation. I find that interesting given the Sulla story now because you have to look at that stat and say, <laughs> was it really him? Did he get someone else to do it and then just take the credit? I think a lot of the database, because we're going so far back, there's always a bit of like, how much of this was propaganda? How much of this was truth? Yes. I think definitely for Caius, given that he has this track record of taking credit where it wasn't due, you definitely maybe need to take uh, some of his stats with a grain of salt. So anyway, the real, real litmus test for Gaius Marius when he's coming back is going to be back home towards Italy. Because right now, further north in Europe, there are two tribes, the Cimbri and the Teutones, and they are causing hassle for Rome. Now, they're possibly, these two tribes, some kind of super confederation or conglomerate of Celts and Germanic people, but long story short, they are two incredibly dangerous groups of people who are causing huge losses for Rome at the time. Now, some of this can be attributed that Rome hasn't had a real, real, real challenge for quite some time. The Punic Wars was backs against the rope, horrible situation where they could have lost everything on a coin flip. They were dealing with Hannibal. And then you produce your Scipio Africanus, he saves the day, we move on. But after your Scipio Africanus, there's just colossal expansion. There's no real mega threat. This incredible battle-hardened super veterans of the Second Punic War training their subordinates who are possibly very, very good in their own right. And then the third generation after them, they're kind of looking a bit sluggish and they're almost attributing that Rome just doesn't lose because Rome just doesn't lose. That's just what Rome does. When they do actually find themselves in tricky situations, the Romans find it at this time quite difficult. And it probably helps to explain why our earlier commander here, the Scipio grandchild, Scipio Emilianus, is only scoring better than like the average Roman commander which is quite, you know, you would think he should be scoring a lot higher, but this seems to be a dip or a lull in the ability of, of the Roman leadership at this time. So, with that in mind, the Cimbri and the Teutons are causing huge hassle for Rome's colossal upsets, and only Marius is deemed with his recently solidified military reformations as the guy who will be able to beat them. Now, we'll talk a tiny bit about Marius's reformations because... At this time, there's definitely a lot of changes in the Roman military structure. But Marius is the guy who is credited with solidifying all of them together and, and capitalising on it. 
He's also attributed for reducing the logistical supply chain of the Romans. And what I mean by that is like the baggage train. So normally you'd have this big army and after it, you'd have a bunch of camp followers of chefs, cooks and slaves and people just with wagons and carts. And they'd be carrying your supplies and your food and your whatever, supplying you for the camp. Marius is going to knock two birds with one stone here of going, I'm not going to have lazy soldiers and I'm going to reduce on logistical supplies by literally having my troops carry very heavy backpacks with them with all of their supplies or, or quite a huge significant increase of them. And that will make them quite fit and strong and active and have a high level of stamina. And they'll be referred to as Marius's mules. He's also attributed with using the pilum, reinforcing it within the Roman legion at this time. So the pilum is this spear that the Romans will throw at their enemies. And usually it'll be a big volley that will be fired at the enemy right before engagement happens, causing hazard and problems to the enemy line, while also, you know, probably a certain amount of uh, morale hit when you haven't even touched the enemy and they're already firing mountains of javelins at you. He'll also re-standardize the army. And by re-standardize it, I mean the Romans now are going to have a fixed unit. So in modern militaries, you're very common to see everyone wears the same uniform, in ancient armies, you're going to have people who might have a whole different thing of, I've got a better shield than you, I've got a better sword, I've got a spear. Depending on where you're from and what your background is, you could have a whole different host of equipment just based on your income, your social status, everything. But this is going to be a state-sponsored soldier with standardized gear, heavy shield, pilums to throw, and a gladius sword to stab with. So it's just going to be this super solidified, standardized, heavy infantry unit that will be almost impossible to beat by other infantry units. This is going to be the introduction of the cohort. And if you're interested in the cohort, it's worth definitely looking it up. But long story short, we have a super standardized unit and state-sponsored army and that are well-drilled, well-trained and are now professional soldiers. This is what they do. They're not necessarily farmers. They don't have something to go home to. So they're, they're full-time, full-time soldiers. It is this kind of army that Marius is going to bring to take on the Cimbri and the Teutons. So, Cahal, let's have a look at Marius taking on these two tribes and how well he's going to do. So, the reason Marius had to be brought in is because the Cimbri and the Teutons were probably the biggest threat Rome had seen since Hannibal. A bit of background to it, these were Germanic tribes, they were migrating through Europe, they were coming south. Rome was continuing to expand in every direction, including north. And uh, they encounter one another. Rome tried its usual trick to try it on barbarians, you know, where it would kind of try and keep imposing laws and then wipe them out. And this time, the Cimbris weren't fooled. They discovered they were going to be betrayed. They started fighting back a lot earlier than I suppose Rome was expecting. Rome already had a couple of losses against them where they were just overwhelmed by numbers. Like it was 10 to 1 differences. It wasn't necessarily bad tactics or anything, but just... Cimbrian two-tones, you know, it was, it's almost the whole population, basically, fighting against them. Um, but these, you know, it was against smaller armies, it was further away. But then in 105 BC, we reach the Battle of Arosio. This is a combined two Roman armies. It's a big, big battle. It's 200,000 on the Cimbri side, 120,000 on the Roman side. Yes. It's happening in what is modern-day Provence, so it's very close to Italy, very close to Rome. Now, the history machine, it gave the Cimbrians about a 75% chance to win this. It did expect that they would win it, but the casualties dealt out. Um, when I first run, ran this through the history machine, it helped me uncover a bug because it was giving, you know, greater than 100% like casualties dealt over expectation. I ended up rounding it down. But basically, uh, history machine expected 
the Cimbrians to deal out about 9,500 casualties. They wiped out the entire Roman army. The entire 120,000 were just gone after this. Um, so you have this massive, massive barbarian army who know how to beat Roman armies as they currently exist, pre-Marian reforms, and they're right on the doorstep of Rome. Rome gets a bit of a, just a small bit of luck here because they decide next they're going to launch a campaign against the Arverni, which is modern-day south-central France, uh, Auvergne. So Rome has a bit of time to prepare now for when the Cimbri finally turns south. This is where Marius is called in. Amazingly, I know there are many times where history is on a nice edge and something could go right, something could go left, you don't know what's going to happen. The colossal damage that this Cimbri two-tone league would cause to Rome, if they just continued to go south, they possibly could have ended the whole Roman Republic before it ever gets to be an empire. But that's very heavy speculation. But time will show here now, with a little bit of preparation and a lot of just general manliness, we're going to have Gaius Marius train up and whip into shape his units and get them standardised, ready to go, drilled. They are now going to be ready to take on this existential threat to Roman existence. With that uh, put aside as well, Sulla's also kind of behind the scenes involved, so... We're probably going to give him a little bit of credit as well, because Marius seems to be a bit of a glory hog. Sol is also attributed to some of this training and recruiting and pinch of salt there and how much Marius is, is involved with it. But he's definitely the guy who's, who's to be responsible for it. With all of that in mind, and we've seen that the Battle of Arusio, where it was so bad, it might have been a, it was possibly a bug from our AI. It's like, oh wait, this is such a standout battle. We're going to look at the Battle of Aquia Sexte, where Marius is going to take on the Teutonic army uh, with roughly 40,000 men, Roman men, brand new, super standardized mega army ready to go and take on the supposed 200 or so thousand. So, Cahal, let's take a look at what's going to happen here. How does Gaius Marius fare against this army that has proven it can beat Roman troops? Yeah, so this is a big underdog performance here. Uh, History Machine gave him a 25% chance to win. He was outnumbered about 3 to 1 by the Teutons. Not only did he win, he captured the enemy commander, uh, King Tudabod. So this... Of the alliance of the Teutons and the Cimbri, this takes the Teutons out. And the casualties dealt over expectation is 0.869. So expected casualties dealt out about 5,700. Instead, 110,000 was the final outcome, while taking next to nothing himself. Total massacre. Like, it, it was just a total... Cru- yeah, just absolutely crushed them. And, yeah, it was just... any You know, anyone was either killed, captured, or take, you know taken as a slave... Uh, as an interesting fact as well, it's noted for this particular battle that the use of the pilum, or pila for plural, that the throwing of it was devastating against the barbarian charge that was going to hit the Romans. And also that Gaius Marius would move his units out of fortified positions and face the barbarians, for want of a better term here. Well, the better term is the Cimbrians and the Teutones. So to face the Cimbrians and the Teutones, He would march his army outside their fortifications, take them on in open battle, and they would be killing so many enemies they would be using their bodies as defences and fortifications. So it's a a hard thing to vision in your head, but it must show the effectiveness of like how well 
this Pelham was working. Um, so anyway, let's move on to the next battle. So Cahal, could you tell me about the Battle of Versilier? In this battle, uh, Marius takes on the remaining Cimbrian army. And a lot of similarities here between the Battle of Aque Sexte. Mm-hmm. Again, Marius outnumbered roughly three to one, given about a 25% chance to win. And again, takes very few casualties himself, deals, wipes out essentially the entire other army. Um, like even on a logarithmic scale, the casualty numbers are so far apart. Marius is taking maybe three figure mm-hmm. casualties, mm-hmm. whereas the Kimbri are taking six figure casualties uh, in this one. All the enemy commanders killed or captured, just totally wiped out. This is basically problem dealt with now. Cimbrian Teutones are no more after this. Rome may have taken huge losses prior to Marius getting there, but yeah, he just he just stopped dead uh, any momentum that they had built. And uh, almost as a as a as a bit of a a super reward for the amount he's done, Marius is going to be re-elected consul time and time again, and it's generally because there's going to be X amount of battle. We need to get Gaius Marius in there. Let's not take any chances because we've lost Roman armies before by putting the wrong guy in charge. So he, time after time again, he's going to be elected consul. Now, around this time, Sulla is going to leave Marius's legions because possibly his glory is being stolen and that Marius is the guy who's, who's stealing it. So Marius's career, he's moved into public office. He's still consul. He's a fantastic commander. He's got, you know, he's got triumphs and, and uh, successes and everything to his name. But at, at a particular point, uh, Metellus Numidicius would be exiled and Marius would attempt to bring him back. But he kind of lose political favor in the process and would have a kind of a self-imposed exile in retirement. So there we kind of have Mar- Marius pushed to the side. But where he'll return will be the social wars. Now, we've mentioned that Rome at this time is going to have a lot of political and economic crises. And the social wars is a great example of this because you can't really be a senator and you're very limited in your voting rights if you are not literally a Roman. You could be somebody from the south of Italy who's allied for Rome for centuries and yet you don't have the right to be a senator, you don't have the right to vote, you don't have the right to do whatever, you don't have full citizenship and voting rights. The problem is these particular warriors and these particular city-states, they still provide a colossal amount of manpower for Rome. In fact, a lot more than Rome proportionally would be producing for itself. And these people are like, I better have a say in what goes on in the day-to-day of politics or we don't feel really happy about this and we might just break off. Now, the problem with this is because the Romans are used to dealing with barbarians or possibly Greek city-states and battling them, but the enemy is now at home. The enemy is already within Italy. We don't have to like fight them off at the Cisalpine Hills and hope they don't get into Italy. And these city-states and these um, countries and kingdoms and principalities or whatever they might have been before, they have now decided we're going to break off and form our own independence and we're going to put Rome back in its place a little bit because we want to have our own Senate, our own voting rights, our own everything. But amazingly, because they are Italian, they are part of the Roman army, we now have the Roman standardised legionnaire up against the Roman standardised legionnaire. They know the same tactics. They have the same commanders. They have the same centurion organisation. They have the same officer structure. They are probably, some of them, the cream of the crop of the Roman army. And now we got a huge problem where... This social war is putting Rome's back against the wall for the first time in quite a long time, um, other than, of course, 
the the invasion we just mentioned with the Cimbri and the Teutones. So the social war would be a big return for Marius because they need to find a good commander and say what you want about Gaius Marius, but he's a, he's a good commander. And it would come to pass that effectively Rome would grant citizenship to a lot of its previous allies, new enemies, and then they'd find themselves in this position where there's a little bit of a political reorganisation. Marius goes back into obscurity and we'll talk a little bit about Sulla now and his background, but we'll probably come back to Marius a little bit at the end. So to kick off, Lucius Cornelius Sulla Felix. He is possibly one of the most interesting people I have ever heard about. He's born from an old money family, but without the money. So he kind of has the worst of the situation in terms of I've got no finances to back up this, uh, you know, aristocratic claim, but I do have the blue blood in, in the veins. He's going to spend the majority of his early life hanging around with prostitutes and gladiators and actors and kind of being a charming, cool, reputable son of a like who's going to gain wealth by getting money donated to him by prostitutes and people <laughs> that he's charmed and also from a couple of family members who die and leave him a little bit, little bit of cash. So, so he's, he's going to start off in the real slums of society. That in itself, I'm speculating quite a bit now, but it's amazing to see that this is somebody who has that pedigree background, but they've started from the bottom and they're charming their way to the top. He was definitely educated quite well because he spoke Greek. He would be involved in that capture of Jugurtha, but he's not going to get the credit. And this is going to give him a bit of a natural rift between himself and Marius. He does help Marius during the reformations in training and recruiting troops. He does request a transfer to the army of Quintus Caesar, who would have been Marius's consul partner, because remember, they elect two presidents at the same time. And that's kind of a check and balance thing. So Sulla's like, I actually want to be on the other side, the other team, the other president. I'm going to be with him. Uh, just a couple of notes as well. During the Battle of um, Aquileia 68, Sulla, uh, he's often thought to have been very instrumental in the victory because he had control of the Roman cavalry. Uh, his cavalry routed a barbarian cavalry, which is saying a lot, and he drove them into the main body of the Cimbri, causing chaos. Now, this battle does give Marius a triumph, but Sulla gets some credit and some notice just from his general peers. So Sulla, just to, just to give him a heads up, he's no novice at this situation because he's already served under Gaius Marius, done some of the most amazing things and has made a bit of a name for himself, been involved with some negotiations with the Parthians. So, you know, he's a charming fellow, to say the least. And eventually he leaves the East to return to Rome where he aligns himself with the Optimates, which are meant to be the best party, but they're, they're like the aristocrats as an opposition to Gaius Marius, who's kind of running under the, the average working kind of guy. So Sulla does quite well in the east and um, he's hailed Imperator on the field by his men several times. Now, that obviously sounds very similar to the term Emperor, which is we get it directly from Imperator. But Imperator is like this military honour that your troops can give you generally when you, when you save them all from being killed. And it's like, we're going to hail you as em Imperator. You're the man. You get done. <laughs> like, you're the best of the best. We love you. So it, it's this wonderful title that you get and he also gets which Julius Caesar also gets this accomplishment but he gets the floral crown which is your troops effectively make a crown for you out of the herbs and plants from that battlefield and you get to wear it as this high super honor so he has so many achievements underneath the belt the social war breaks out uh, because of the events of the social war 
Sulla is actually going to be elected consul. He is now going to have a fantastic time because he's going to have an army. He's going to be able to do what he wants. He's going to be able to become fabulously wealthy. And he's got to deal with Mithridates in the east. And that's Mithridates of Pontus, who during the social war goes, now is the time to rebel against Rome. Now, Gaius Marius, who holds no political office at this time, is going to give Sulla a hard time. Because he has his friend Publius Sophilius Rufus call an assembly and they're going to appoint, who would you know, Marius, a private citizen, to the command in Pontus. They're going to go like, okay, Sulla, you got to deal with that. So <laughs> Sulla is going to have some Roman messengers go all the way over to him to the east and kind of say, hey, by the way, Gaius Marius is now in charge of this army because, you know, we don't want you to have too much glory. Maybe you might get a triumph out of this, but Marius is kind of the guy. Let's put him in charge because political reasons. And Sulla pretty much turns to them, and I'm paraphrasing quite a bit, but he's like, you and what army? And they're like, uh, your army? It's like, yeah, that's right, my army. So they kind of command him, hey, you need to go back to Rome. And then he kind of replies with, and I'm paraphrasing a lot here and speculating, make me. Sulla is going to do something unprecedented at this point and it will shape forever the Roman Republic and how the Roman Empire afterwards will behave. He's going to break one of these unwritten taboos, one of these ones that was set all the way back. You do not enter with any troops into Rome. Sulla is going to pretty much go, I've got this colossal army and nobody else does right now and they want to take it from me. And due to Marian reforms, they're loyal to me, not the state, because they, they're not getting any land from, from Rome. They're just going to get paid from me. Exactly, yeah. I've made promises with my troops. No one's going to uphold those. So how about all of you people come with me? You don't have any land. All of you are just going to come with me. We're going to go back to Rome. We're going to march in it. We're just going to have a little bit of a civil war. Just a little one. So Sulla will march on Rome. Uh, at this point, a very aged Marius is now in a panic state and Rome is like what do we do Sulla's about to come back so he he comes back and uh, Marius flees Sulla will effectively take over Rome and just pass a couple of laws purge a couple of enemies and go listen I'm putting some people in charge here you all have to swear not to kill them and uh, I'll be back in a couple of years I gotta go back and deal with these these shenanigans out east uh, in the meantime Play it cool or I'll be back. It is kind of amazing that he basically launches a coup just so he can be like, now, let me get back to my real job. Like, I'm not going to be dictator for long. I just need to make sure you're not going to try and take my actual job off me again. So he returns back to the East and is going to have his fabulous wins. Now, Marius after this is going to, we're going to have like purges and counter purges. So Marius will return to Rome and his kind of thing is like, well, I never promised not to kill anybody. And he's going to purge the people who are there supporting Sulla, introduce some reformations. So there, there's like a counter, counter, counter going on. While Sulla is back in Greece, Marius is going to get his seventh consulship. And yay, the prophecy is fulfilled and, you know, the, the whatever happens, the stars align. But Gaius Marius will die as quite an old, possibly demented man at that point. And that's kind of where he who was never really able to take on Sulla and Sulla is now the, the shining new forward commander. It's left Gaius Marius in the dust. Anyway, let's have a small look at a couple of the battles from Sulla just before he comes back here, here again to deal with, uh, with, with the Romans. But Cahal, could you tell me a little bit about the 87 BC siege of Athens and Piraeus? So this was very significant siege in the Mithridatic War. Athens, one of the allies. It was kind of an overall 
Greek city-state rebellion here. This was main siege of Athens, and if you, you might remember if you've listened for a while, Pyrrhus was Athens' port, and they were linked by a wall channel. Now, at this point in time, that wall is crumbled. So Sulla, in this one, actually has to do a double siege. He has to have two separate sieges going on simultaneously. The difference in numbers here... Now, grain of salt on this one, because a lot of these are going to be civilians living within the city, but has Sulla's army at about 45,000 and the Greek army 250,000. History Machine gave him a 25% chance to win. He not only wins, but he deals 0.852 casualties over expectation. So putting that into real numbers, he was expected to kill maybe 12,000 people in the process. Instead, he killed 225,000. A slaughter. Or captured, you know, so this is another example of just an insane slaughter. Yeah, and you're just seeing, you're seeing like the numbers, the kind of like the casualties dealt over expectation. Again, we are saying earlier how much of, like Gaius Marius, he was definitely a good general in his own regard, but you see where maybe he was taking some of Sulla's credit. Gaius Marius' stats are very good overall, but I think there's a non-zero amount that was accounted for for when Sulla was with him. And... Another significant thing about this battle, uh, he won't come up too much in this episode, but he's definitely worth a mention because his stats are excellent. One of the sub-commanders here was Lucius Licinius Lucullus, who was basically Sulla's right-hand man, and his stats, uh, his wins over expectation put him as the second best Roman general in our database. Oh, wow. He had six battles, six wins, 0.73 wins over expectation. So his average, like, he won every battle on an average... He had only slightly over a you know a one in four chance to win it according to the history machine. Oh wow! He is phenomenal. And initially, I thought when I saw these numbers, it was probably a thing like Alexander the Great sub commanders, where maybe he was writing Saul's coattails a bit. But only one of his battles in the database, this one, uh, has him as a sub commander under Sulla. The others he was leading himself. So this is very much a period, you know, as we were saying, after you had a bit of a a lull where Rome didn't have any real enemies. So you kind of you have a few just real standout generals here. Um, you had Marius, you have Sulla, and you have Lucullus, and they are all just way, way above the average <laughs> um, in terms of ability here. Yeah. Looking at all that, it's it's maybe not a surprise that Sulla won this, but uh, definitely just some crazy numbers in this in terms of casualties dealt out. Mm -hmm. Now, we probably won't go into as much detail with the 86 BC Battle of Charonia, but Sulla here again definitely wins against the odds. So, Carl, do you want to mention just a little bit of the numbers uh, we could just put into perspective of how well he's performing here now that he's like the chief guy in charge? Like this, this episode's full of absolutely bonkers numbers. Uh, again, you know, outnumbered four to one, given, you know, again, close to a 25% chance to win. Sulla not only wins with his 30,000 army against 120,000, potentially, his... Okay, his expected casualties suffered was 4,700. Uh, the figure we have here, uh, you know, not totally accurate, but gives you an idea of the scale, is 12. Which, I'd say in those days with attrition, you probably had more people dying on the way to the battle than actually in the battle. The expected casualties for him to deal out for this one was maybe 5,700. He dealt out 110,000. Jesus so. Christ! Oh, yeah. Like, 
on a logarithmic scale, these are miles apart, these figures, and it's it's just unbelievable. He scored phenomenally. Like, he's probably killing more people in his era than most plagues did, you know? He's just... It's it's frightening, um, the damage that he that he did. I have no idea why people wanted to rebel when he was around. So yeah, so it's around this time as well that Rome decides to send an army to deal with Sulla. It's like, we got to take this guy out. We can't have some kind of tyrant on the loose here. And amazingly, in the situation, when the troops land and they're going to deal with Sulla, they encamp, they trench up, they're ready to give a bit of a fight. There's going to be a little bit of political back and forth negotiations. But this is where I mentioned earlier, I think Sulla's got to be one of those like unbelievably charismatic, out of this world individual. Because the troops line up and they start, you know, making their fortifications, digging their ditches, whatever. And they don't say a word to each other. But the opposing troops look at Sulla's troops, have a little bit of a nod, a little bit of a salute, and then hop over these trenches and fortifications and start building Sulla's ones instead of building their own. (laughs) (laughs) And gradually, through a sheer force of magnetism, of like absolute charisma... A whole Roman army just dissolves and joins Sulla. They're like, this is the guy we want to be on the side with. <laughs> so it's, it's, he's just one of these absolutely charismatic people. And what's insane about this is that doesn't just happen once. That happens twice. Like, yeah. <laughs> where an, where another, uh, an, uh, another Roman garrison will be, another Roman army will be meant to deal with them. And it's like, no, fizzling away. Sorry, we're just going to join. We're going to join the winning team here. We know, we know who writes our checks. It's just insanity. So, so while we're mentioning defections, uh, we'll go to the Battle of Orchomenus, where Sulla is going to have a decisive battle in the first Mithridatic War. Yeah, so this one is very interesting. Now, again, a lot of the stats look similar to Sulla's other battles. You know, he won against the odds, uh, massively outnumbered, mm-hmm. only a small chance mm-hmm. of victory. Uh, he did a very good job preserving his own numbers. He took very, very few casualties. The one thing that's different here is that he didn't deal out as many casualties as usual. You know, he only, as in he only dealt out maybe four times as many as he would expect. <laughs> but um, I think the reason for that is most likely because the enemy commander, Archelius, just decided, never mind Mithridates, I'm just, I'm defecting now as well. Like, this wasn't just like a small skirmish, this wasn't, you know, kind of a, a flim, you know, a commander who was maybe on the fringes, or, you know, some kind of lower level guy. This was the decisive battle of the war. This is the battle that led <laughs> to the war ending and Mithridates' rebellion just being done with oh um, my god yeah. so yeah this is it's it's probably one of the only solo battles where he didn't absolutely destroy the enemy army but that might be true that the commander joined yeah <laughs> they didn't want to be going against him again after what happened to everyone else oh my so. god yeah <laughs> so yes yeah, so strange one. after all of these uh shenanigans over in the east uh, Sulla's going to decide to go back to rome because listen he's got a lot of enemies to counter the counter counter purging and um, he's got a lot of people to pay as well, you know, because you don't just make promises to troops. You kind of have to follow through on them. So he does return to Rome, purges his enemies. He gets himself declared dictator for an unspecified amount of time. Now, we've mentioned dictator in earlier episodes, and the term is very familiar to the modern ears. You understand that if you think of dictator, you might think of somebody who's, you know, dressed up in charge of a country, their word is law, they can do whatever they want. But in Rome, it's actually a political position where we don't have time for the back and forth petty bureaucracies 
and the arguing and the whatever. It's like we're going to put one guy in charge because we have a state of emergency. Got to get things done. It has to be like his word is law. Just listen to it. For example, it happened in the Punic War with Fabian. But Sulla effectively gets himself declared, okay, I guess I'm dictator and what I say is law and I get to happen. I could do whatever I want. And he decides to do a crazy amount of just general political reform. So, for example, the office of the Tribune of the Plebs, which caused so much hassle to the Roman political system, it caused the Gracchi brothers to be killed and the, the power to veto was crazy and it was a great stepping stone to become consul. That office was now the end of your political career. If you ran to be the Tribune of the Plebs, you could not run for any other office. That just ended the ambition of anybody wanting to go into that position to get their vetoed. That is a closed, shut situation. He also introduced age restrictions on political positions. So you had to be a particular age to be, you know, a praetor, a particular age to be a quasar, a particular age to be consul. It's just what you had to do. So he limited the, the ambitions of very, very young men. Now, with that in mind, Sulla, who is this, as I said, phenomenal, charismatic, over-the-top kind of person, he has a lot of famous names that will come along around the time of Julius uh, Caesar already involved in his army. Crassus and Pompey are both allied with them. Crassus being a young, rich individual. Pompey being kind of a military crazed, I want to make a name for myself kind of fellow with all the, the trophies and the honours and the, the victories. He's able to spot the talent, pull them out and get them to work for him. Also, at this time, as I mentioned, we just threw the name there, Julius Caesar. Sulla will kind of say, I want this kid killed because I can see there's many a Marius in him and he's going to cause a lot of trouble down the line. So I think this young upstart kid, you should get rid of him right now before he becomes a real problem. And ironically, he would follow Sulla's template later on. Of exactly. Marching around. <laughs> Almost step for step. And not as well as Sulla. Yeah. But Julius Caesar at that age would flee and, and go into exile because he's like, I don't want to hang around while this guy's around because Sulla is definitely going to have me killed. It turns out that Caesar gets very lucky and has enough political sway and connections, even as a young teenager. He's not going to be killed at such an early age, but he only comes back after Sulla dies. Now, because Sulla owes so much money to his troops and he needs to promise land, he's got a lot going on. The purge list becomes extensively, we'll say, bloated with people who happen to be traitors and happen to also have a lot of property. Killing two birds with, with, with one stone where I'll release a traitor list, we'll kill them, confiscate their land, dole it out to some of my troops along with some money. And then it's like, oh, wait, I found there's more traitors. Let's make an even bigger list and kill some more people and dole out some of those resources. As I said, he's, he's now a dictator. He can do whatever he wants. He expands the pomerium, for example, the law that he absolutely shattered. And he makes other reformations, but he very heavily favours the aristocracy. Now, all of this done, all of the reformations, all of the changes, all of the loyalty, all of his enemies purged. Sulla's going to retire to whine, to have fun. And even that said alone, when in the modern age have you ever heard of a dictator, somebody who is fully in charge of a country, is an absolute, just ruling with an iron fist, to get to retire into absolute obscurity, have fun, hang out with actors, drink some wine, live your life, and then just die of a stomach ulcer. That is how Sulla goes. Even to go even further, he's going to have a full funeral. There's going to be no desecration. There's no Oliver Cromwell will dig him up and hang him after he dies. There's no desecration. Gets a full funeral. People are practically afraid of the corpse of this man. He's given a particular epitaph, which apparently was his personal motto. No better friend, no worse enemy. Just, just at the side, and I, I've thought about this quite a lot. I'm sure, Cahill, you might, you might agree with me. 
But when I learned of Sulla and read a little bit about him and found out more and more of his accomplishments, he seems like the kind of guy who's probably an absolute monster. But I imagine if I go partying with him or have a night out, <laughs> I'm going to have the time of my life. We're going to be hanging around with gladiators and actors. <laughs> like We're going to be drinking wine. <laughs> we're, like we're going to have an absolute blast. And I think it's that incredible tour de force of personality, the super level of charisma the undeniable like genius that's just lurking behind it. He's both politically genius and militarily genius. Yeah. And he just seems like this all round super person that's practically made in a lab in terms of how about we get somebody who's blue blooded. So they've got all of those connections, but we're going to start him at the bottom. We're going to get him to mingle with the everyday man. We're going to get him to work his way up. Bit of self-made money. Self-made in the sense of he's probably pimping people. But like get his all the way to the top. Get to be consul. Declared dictator. Retires as dictator. He's got no enemies left because everybody's dead and just dies of like a regular disease. He is like, if you were aspiring to be a dictator, he's the person whose poster you'd have on your wall. Like he is, yeah. he's, you know, so charismatic and fun to his friends. And if they stop being his friends, he'll kill them. <laughs> it's, it's a whole other level. But if we want to compare him to Julius Caesar, now remember... The funny thing is Julius Caesar is after this guy. This guy sets the template and it, the template works. And it's kind of a thing of they both start from blue-blooded families. They both don't have a lot of money. They both get themselves some money. They both get themselves political office and military command. They both end up marching on Rome. They both become dictators for life. Well, actually, Julius Caesar is killed just before he gets to be kind of declared dictator for life. But then Sulla continues with the whole idea of he's purged all of his enemies while Julius Caesar forgave all of his enemies. And then Sulla goes a little bit further along the lines of I have no enemies left. I get to retire. I have a bit of fun. I passed a couple of laws, but everything is shattered. Uh, even though he's all of these laws passed, he's everything implemented. The Senate is a shell of itself. Um, and everyone knows that Pandora's box is open and now you can affect it again. So he's so similar to Julius Caesar, but everybody knows Caesar. But nobody or almost nobody knows Sulla. It's just that name that just doesn't stick out there. He doesn't get the credit. And it's literally saying that, hey, there's a guy who did all the things this person did before him. And better, yet he doesn't he doesn't get the acknowledgement for it, which is or at least the the historical memory nearly as much as his counterpart. Absolutely. Okay, so we're coming close to the end of our episode and we're going to do a top five because we have the names, we have the data, we have the information and we can look a little bit more in depth into some of their details. So Cahal, please come in here at number five. So number five with wins over expectation of minus 0.18 is Archelius, the Pontic general, and he had the misfortune to be Sulla's opponent three different times. As soon as he went up against Sulla, uh, it just tanked all his stats to the point, as we mentioned, that he then defected to Rome and would be fighting on the Roman side in the second Mithridatic War. In a hypothetical, if you're like, I got to select one of these commanders to fight for me, you're like, you don't want the one that will literally join the enemy. So yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty good example of a negative score. Yeah, uh, yeah. it so, really is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, his, his stats, basically, as a result of fighting against Sola, uh, they're just terrible across the board. Casualties suffered above expectation is 0.31. Mm -hmm. Casualties dealt is about average. And yeah, very bad yeah. wins over so expectation. So he's, he's just scoring fairly poor in the wins that should be expected to happen and the rest yeah. are kind of floating bog mid-standard mid kind of stuff. Okay, so coming in at number four, please. So here I'm going to do a joint fourth place because mm -hmm. their wins over expectation in both cases 0 0.03, which is 
you know, almost exactly average. Yes. We have King Tudabad and King Boerix of the Two Tones and Kimbri, respectively. They both had three battles. They both had two wins, uh, in which they were co-commanders. The battles that they lost had such similar stats, they ended up with almost the exact same wins over expectations, which was the aforementioned Battle of Aquae Sexte and Battle of Verkele, which both of them lost to Gaius Marius, both of them got... Annihilated. Their armies were just, yeah, entirely annihilated. Their other stats, very, very bloody, um, to say the least. Their casualties dealt over expectation is both close to 0.7, which is some of the highest with over three battles in database, but their casualties sustained is 0.3 over expectation, so they lose a lot of men too. So they kill an absolute mountain of men, but they lose not necessarily the same amount, but a colossal amount themselves. All right, so coming in then at number three. Number three, we have Gaius Marius. 0.69 wins over expectation, which is pretty huge, especially considering he had that draw there, bringing him down, which shows like the battles he did win were both like against very heavy odds. Yes. He also, as I mentioned earlier, has the highest enemy commander killed or captured above expectation, 0.66. So basically two out of three battles he would... Capture a commander. (laughs) Now it is disputable as we found as to whether or not he was really responsible. He may have taken credit where it wasn't due and maybe the other times he did it, there wasn't a Sulla to kind of stake their claim and say, no, I actually did this. Uh, we don't really know, you know, it's speculating, but... Um, it is, anyway, it's, it's an interesting regardless, speculation. Regardless, though... He does even, have the highest stats even if Even if he did have a lot of help along the way, maybe from having just very good sub-commanders, Guys still has such huge stats um, that you have to say he was very good himself, even accounting for this. Yes. Now, coming in then, please, at second place. Second place. Uh, didn't get much of a mention in this, unfortunately, because we had a lot of other big characters mentioned, but... Lucius Licinius Lucullus uh, is second with 0.73 wins over expectation, Mm -hmm. which puts him as the second best Roman general of all time. In fact, the second highest general on our database. um, Wow. So he's actually, according to this, a higher chance of winning against the odds than an Alexander the Great. Yeah. And he actually, you know, he has six battles. That's enough to say he is a very good one. Um, Overshadowed by Sola. He was kind of the right-hand man of Sola, but... um, very, very strong general in his own right. Uh, casualties sustained is below average, quite comfortably, 0.08. Casualties dealt over expectation, 0.52. So another huge... Butcher. Basically, yeah. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we didn't get into it too much, but uh, very, very strong general in his own right. So coming in at number one, first place for this whole episode. So number one for this episode... For all Roman generals, for all generals on our database, it is Sulla. Five battles, five wins, 0.77 wins over expectation. So his average battle uh, was less than one in four chance. And that includes, I I think out of his five battles, he only had one where he wasn't the underdog. And in this one, he had a 50-50 chance. It was in civil war against other Romans. His casualty sustained above expectation was minus 0.12, which is phenomenally good and we saw in many of his battles how he had casualty figures you know maybe in the two or three figures um which was absurd considering Mm -hmm. the size of the armies involved his casualties dealt over expectation is not as huge as other ones in this database it's still huge it's still 0.56 but you even look like he had he had the bat that last battle against archelius where he seemed to be holding back somewhat he had another battle 
on the database uh, another couple of battles, which involved a civil war. Uh, so he was potentially <laughs> holding back there because he knew, you know, these guys could be on my payroll when this whole thing's done with. You know, he'd want to, he, he seemed to have very, he seemed to kill exactly as many people as he wanted to. But if you, if you didn't have those battles, if you just had the other three where he, he really wanted to kill everyone, he would have had the highest casualties dealt over expectation of any general. Wow. Um, I'm going to go through it in real numbers versus expected. Across all five battles, the combined size of Sol's armies across those was about 136,000, fighting a combined size of 533,000. Okay. The history machine expected that of that he would have lost about 20,300 men. He lost 7,000. Okay, wow. It was expected he would deal out casualties of about 26,000. Instead, he killed 410,000 of the 530 that he faced. Woo! Killed or captured. So he was very good at killing people. He's very, very good at getting a big army and putting it against the other big army and killing that other army. Yes. So, yeah, that's... I have to say, of of our database, he is definitely... Head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of just killing things. I even think just just looking at the stats and checking out the history and looking at the story of Sulla, it makes so much sense that there would be Roman legionnaires who would come up against him and just go, I'm, I'm going to just hop over this trench and join <laughs> yeah. this side. And enemy commanders from different places around the world going, yeah, I think I'm just going to join this guy. There's no way I can get around this. He's just so charismatic. As, as big... A- and an ambitious uh, historical figure as Julius Caesar just says, I'm just going to hang back until this guy is dead. <laughs> like, not even, like, you know, retired. It's just like, yeah. no, I'm not, just, like, I know, I know people are saying he's just out parodying, he's not doing anything, but I'm not going to take any chances until he is in the ground. <laughs> yeah. And that's Caesar <laughs> doing this, so. His own epitaph really does, I think it sums up our conclusions from this episode. Yes. Better friend, no worse enemy. That is, that is Sulla. Thanks very much for listening to our latest episode and um, we're going to come back with our season finale, episode 10, and we're not actually going to cover a specific commander or a specific era. We're going to look at the current database and the current history machine as a whole and just go through some other people that we have mentioned and other people we haven't mentioned and probably propose some hypothetical battles as well. So it's really just going to look at almost every battle we have up to and including the year 0 AD. We're going to check it out. We're going to do a full evaluation of it because after it, we're going to move into season two and we're going to add a couple of centuries in terms of a timeline onto the database as well. We're going to check out some interesting people that are going to come to the stage. There'll be be lots of big names that will possibly come into it because we're going to be adding a lot more information along the line. Okay, so thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to contact us, you can email us at historymachinepodcast.com at gmail.com or you can also find us on twitter machine underscore history or if you just search for history machine podcast you'll find us and we have a website as well historymachinepodcast.com so i've been nile and i've been cahill and thanks very much for your time and we hope you enjoy this episode